So two of the more famous people playing around in the debate that comes out of Popper are Thomas Kuhn and Imre Lakatos, both of whom I've given you pieces from to read for the discussion today. The basic thing to bear in mind is that for Kuhn, the criticism of Popper, his criticism of Popper, is that science, the actual history of science, displays these discontinuous jumps, not just continuous falsification. So people hold on to particular claims. They work, as Kuhn says, within a paradigm. And that means that instead of science being about progressive refinement of propositions, you have these moments of revolutionary science where everything is kind of up in the air and then it congeals again into a new paradigm. So Lakatos, who's another person who is involved in these debates and has an interesting story because he used to be actually a Communist Party official in Hungary and then got out of Hungary and one of the people who helped him get out and get established in the West, quote-unquote, was Karl Popper. So Lakatos was always personally tied to Popper as well as these intellectual ties. And Lakatos, as you've seen, suggests that Kuhn is right, there are discontinuous jumps, but retrospective rational reconstruction allows us to say whether or not there was actually scientific progress, what he calls a progressive problem shift. So all of these are discussions that take place kind of within the Popperian approach, within this falsification-oriented approach. You can think of Kuhn and Lakatos as being like two poles of the implications of Popper. And a lot of what unfolds between them including at the conference where Kuhn presented the paper that I'm having you take a look at, which is collected in the book called Criticism of the Growth of Knowledge from 1970, which Lakatos was one of the editors of, that the discussion is really about, okay, how do we work with this notion of falsification even though we know that the history of science does not show continuous falsification? Junior scholars are not likely to publish refutations of existing theories that are upheld by prominent members of their own fields. So there is a sociological aspect to this as well, Kuhn would say. Lakatosh would say, well, yeah, okay, fine, so there's sociology, but really what's interesting here is that if we go back and, and rationally reconstruct what people are doing, then maybe we can come up with some sort of retroactive judgments about the ways that these knowledge claims uh, relate to one another. Now, it's interesting that both of these folks are extremely skeptical about the scientific status of the social sciences. They usually don't have very kind things to say about social science. And that is because, like most of the folks who come out of this tradition, uh, science is really defined as natural science, as physical science. And whether you can even have a social science is still a question that's sort of up in the air for them. This, of course, did not stop people in the social sciences from grabbing on to Kuhn and then to Lakatos as a way of disciplining their own fields into something that they would consider more scientific. 
which is where you get, say, in international studies, the vogue for paradigms, for isms. And so then we have schools of thought, and if we can put those together, then maybe we can be on the royal road to progress. Kuhn has a huge impact on the social sciences generally, despite the fact that Kuhn is pretty clear that he's not writing about the social sciences. And Lakatosh's criteria for discerning progress retrospectively often get turned into ways of evaluating scientific progress in the moment now. So there's some weird translation kinds of issues, conceptual translation issues with these folks. But they get tossed around a lot, which is why I also think it's important to take a look at them. And it's important to remember that really they're arguing, they and Popper, they're really within sort of one basic set of claims, one basic wager, if you will, which is this wager, this dualist wager about falsifiability. Though that's really kind of what they're playing. Kuhn gets right up to the edge of it, and in some of his later work, he actually kind of jumps over the edge a little. But for the most part, they're all still operating within this same space which is a space that I'm going to suggest we call neo-positivism because it's not like older logical positivism. It's about falsification rather than about verifying. But it does have the emphasis on precise logical form that logical positivism was famous for. The preference for numbers, the preference for statistics, the preference for quantification excuse me, in neo-positivist work is, I will suggest to you, actually an expression of the desire for precision. It's not an ex-ante commitment to numbers per se. It is a commitment to logical precision because you have to be able to work out conditions of falsification of a particular statement. And it's easier to do that if you have very precise articulations of the statement. And numerical statements can be made precise to whatever arbitrary degree of precision you're interested in. So there is a technical or convenience preference, if you will, also, it's easier to express certain kinds of formal properties, formal properties of true statements, say, and false statements, in the language of mathematical statistics. There's a famous book in U.S. political science called Designing Social Inquiry by King Cohane and Verba, published in 1994. And what King Cohane and Verba do in that book is they say, we are open to people using or not using numbers, but the logic of inquiry we have in mind here is best expressed in the language of statistics, and so that's what we're going to do. Of course, that's not because they're like numerophiles. It's because they're neopositivists and because they think that the kind of precision they're interested in is going to be a lot easier to attain if we're using numerical expressions. The basic procedure throughout any kind of neo-positivist approach is the testing of a hypothetical general law. So we put forth a hypothesis. It has to be a general hypothesis because generality is good. We try to falsify it. If it doesn't get falsified, we provisionally hold on to it. Over time, progressively unfalsified generalizations remain, and we have knowledge, and we have the progress of knowledge. There may be bumps in the road because of the Kuhn and Lakatosh things about when discontinuous jumps happen, but in general, it's going to be about the accumulation 
of these law-like statements, general law-like statements. That's the goal of a neopositivist. So one of the little techniques that neopositivists like for being able to see whether you can actually subsume cases under a covering law, which is, of course, what they're trying to do, is by engaging in a set of structured case comparisons. This is a method of comparison pioneered by John Stuart Mill. And this allows a way of doing something sort of quasi-experimental with a set of cases. You can't actually put them in a lab and manipulate things and see what happens. So instead, you can gather observations in a structured way that allows you to do kind of a quasi-experimental test of a particular causal proposition. So if you've got your x variables, your various independent variables, and your dependent variable up on the top row, and then you've got your cases running down the left-hand column, then what you can see is you have here a situation in which case one, we have different values of these variables. You can use, they could be numerical, they could be binary, they can be, you know, various kinds of, of discontinuous measurements. So this is what we're talking about here when it comes to neopositivist comparison. So you gather cases and you say, all right, so can I test this particular proposition? So in this case, suppose I was trying to test the proposition that the x1 variable, whatever it is, is sufficient for causing the outcome. Well, I've got differences on the other two variables, and I've got similarity across x1, and I've got similarity across the outcomes. That kind of looks like it supports that. But then, you know, if I've got another case, okay, well, hmm, maybe there's something else going on here, because now we've still got the, the similarity of that x1 variable, but we don't have similarity in the outcome. I wonder what's happening there, right? So then, okay, let's look at a different case and see. And what the result is of this particular uh, grabbing of this other case could have great implications for whether we think we've actually got our hands around a covering law or not. The whole point here is to try to isolate factors by structured focused comparison so that you can evaluate a general covering law because for a neopositivist explanation is a general covering law. Coming up with a general law is what it means to explain things in a neopositivist approach because if you have a general law then you can subsume individual cases under it and kind of do that thing that Hempel said that you should do except if you're a neopositivist, it's not just I have these sets of general laws. It's no, the general law is itself something that I have hypothetically tested in the course of my study. So I now have confidence in the generality of this particular general law. And that is what allows me to use it to explain particular outcomes. Now, exactly the same thing is what happens here in a regression equation. Right? The standard regression equation is nothing other than an n-dimensional Mills method problem. <laughs> so what you're doing is you're isolating particular factors by gathering data across different numbers of cases, and then you are asking the computer, since we no longer do these things on slide rules or by looking up logarithmic tables in large books, then you ask the computer to plot the best line, plot the residuals, figure out what the association is between a particular independent variable and a particular dependent variable controlling for all of the others. Why do you do that? You do that in order to test a hypothetical general proposition. 
So methodologically speaking, this is on exactly the same page as the small n Mills method case comparison is. It's just that when you're dealing with a regression, you can have many, many more cases and many, many more variables. There are limits in terms of human cognitive capacity about how many you can handle in a set of Mills method boxes. But with this, good lord, you can have these giant sets of data. Note that when you are engaging in this kind of analysis, you are trying to falsify a hypothesis. That's why you gather the sorts of things that you gather, which is the difference between doing a regression equation and just data mining, right? Just looking for association patterns in the data. Looking for association patterns in the data is much closer to older logical positivist notions of things and would, of course, be immediately jumped on by anybody who really believed in falsification, saying, well, no, you're just like observing patterns. What you really need to do here is you've got to gather evidence that will tell you whether or not some hypothetical generalization has been falsified. And any generalization can be falsified at some point in the future, which is why we have to hold on to it as a tentative or conjectural piece of knowledge. Neopositivism thus underlies both the small n and the large n models of systematic case comparison that tend to dominate especially political science, but are relatively prominent in many other social science fields as well. Sociology, an awful lot of work is like this, for instance. Now, in order to pivot from this just slightly, to the other major form of mind-world dualist methodology that we see in the social sciences, we need to be clear on the fact that even though neo-positivists say that correlation and causation are different, they really don't have any alternative. Because if you are a neo-positivist, correlation is the only reasonable evidence of a causal claim, right? A neo-positivist cause is defined as saying that something causes something else in general, or not having something is, is means that you're not going to get the outcome, right? So sufficiency and necessity as the two different versions of those. Again, you're talking about general associations between inputs and outputs that hold true across a number of cases. Where is that going to show up in your study? Where is that going to show up in your data? It's going to show up as a correlation because that's what the tools do. They tell you whether or not there's a systematic covariation and that's what a correlation is. Making this probabilistic does not actually solve the problem or doesn't change it. Because saying that this input causes this output 80% of the time, again, that statement itself is the one that's being tested. So there's really no difference here whether you're making conditional claims or categorical claims or whether you're making probabilistic claims. Neo-positivists, because of the way that they understand the relationship between evidence and generality, have really no alternative except correlation across cases as being the telling mark of causality. This particular position on causality is exactly what a number of critics of neopositivism, who are still within the mind-world dualist approach, they pick up on this problem about causation. 
and the peculiar way that for neopositivists, causality can only refer to things that happen multiple times and with sufficient frequency that they can be mapped across cases. All right, think about that. If something only happens once, was it caused? If you're a neopositivist, it's really difficult to say that if something only happened once, it was caused. Because you really need multiple cases to be able to see whether you've got a general law or not. So an alternative here was articulated by a number of folks who were internally engaged in these debates with neo-positivists. This gentleman here is Ram Hare. He was a student of J.L. Austin's. Austin, probably best known for his book, How to Do Things with Words. And Austin was part of this uh, group at Oxford that was really engaged in kind of linguistic, ordinary language philosophy and so on. And over at Cambridge, it was kind of a rival group around Ludwig Wittgenstein that was engaged in similar kinds of things. The two different groups speak slightly different idioms and slightly different vernaculars and use terms in slightly different ways, but there's a lot of overlap here intellectually between them. Um, and one of the main points of differentiation between these folks and the neopositivists is precisely on this matter of causality, where what Rom in particular, Rom Hare and some of his students and co-thinkers argued was that really when we talk about causality, we're not talking just about a statistical tendency or a covering law. We're really talking about deeper generative potentials. So to say that famine causes violence is not simply to say that famine and violence are associated with one another in a statistically significant way across a number of different cases. It is instead to say that there is something about famine. There is some deeper tendency in famine that produces an outcome in the world. That there is something about being starving that inclines one toward violence. Even if, even if, in particular instances, the connection isn't visible in the data. So an example that the, this particular group, they've called themselves realists, the example that they would give is an example of a magnetic piece of ore, right? So you have a magnet in your hand and you have a pile of iron filings and you put the magnet in the iron filings and you pick it up and what happens, right? The iron filings stick to the magnet. Now, what if you take that same object and same pile of iron filings, but you put a metal wall between the object in your hand and the iron filings? What happens? Well, the metal filings, the iron filings, do not move around in response to the, the magnetic field because there's, there's, you know, there's a wall in the way. So the question that these folks would ask is, 
is the object in your hand no longer a magnet? Well, no, it is a magnet. It's just that something is stopping it from being able to display its magnetic properties. Aha. Causality for realists is not about observable associations. It is instead about how how these deeper proclivities, these powers, causal powers that are intrinsic to objects, can be made to manifest themselves as statistically significant co-variations and correlations, but you need to put them in artificial environments in order to make that true. You have to isolate them in a laboratory, because if you isolate them in a laboratory, then you can say, all right, now I can, I can artificially manipulate what's happening here. So I can take this object and I can make sure that things that might interfere with it showing its magnetic capacities are eliminated. So I can see whether or not it has the potential under the right circumstances to be a magnet, to act like a magnet. And it's important to be precise about that because this object that I'm holding in my hand, right, that is a magnet, I've decided because it does this thing in a laboratory, take it out into the world. The world's a messy place. All kinds of stuff might be interfering with it. So it still has the potential, it still has the causal power associated with magnetism, even though it might not be displaying that causal power at any particular time. In a way, what realists argue is that in order to solve these problems that neopositivists have, being unable to sort out correlation and causation, you have to actually go beyond just what can be empirically perceived. That perception is not exhaustive of reality. Reality also consists of potentials. Reality also consists of powers. Reality also consists of properties that might, under certain circumstances, give rise to observable outcomes, and sometimes won't. And those things are real. Those things are still mind-independently real. It is not a matter of subjective whim whether a particular piece of metal is a magnet. I can't just like think it into being a magnet. I'm not magneto. And so instead of something like that, it's like, no, 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 there's something kind of non-subjective, non-arbitrary about this, even though the potential might not always be seen in certain circumstances. So in order to really grasp what realists mean by this, you have to, I think we got to be more precise about this term unobservable because there's at least three different things that unobservable might mean. And you really only need realism or realism really only bites in as a criticism of neopositivism on the third one. So sometimes we use the word unobservable to talk about things that a particular observer hasn't experienced or perceived. Sometimes unobservable means something that nobody has ever experienced or perceived, at least not yet, you know, like the dark side of Pluto or whatever. Um, And then there are things that no one could even experience in principle. No one could ever possibly perceive. Things that are imperceivable as a matter of theory. That third category is where causal powers live. And that's really where realism gets its bite as a criticism of neopositivism. Let me break this down with a couple of examples here. Well, three examples. So different kinds of unobservables, right? So 
I have not actually observed Angkor Wat. Never seen it. I've seen pictures, but you know, they might be fake. Who knows? So I have not observed Angkor Wat. But for that type of unobservable, there's a very simple solution, which is to actually go and see it. I have not stepped outside of the phenomenalist commitments of neopositivism by saying there's things that I have not seen because I could just go see them. Fairly easy. No massive shift of philosophical wagers required. Gets a little murkier when it comes to things that we can't observe yet or couldn't observe at a particular point in time. So I think it would be better to call these things undetected. So the planet Neptune cannot be seen with the naked eye. It is too far away. There is no human being with enough visual acuity to be able to actually look up into the night sky unaided and see Neptune. There are devices that we have that we can use to perceive Neptune. There are telescopes we have that are powerful enough to do this. There are probes that we have built and launched into orbit and sent out there. So we have a pretty good idea of what it looks like now. But before then, we didn't know that it existed. We didn't know what it looked like. We didn't know what it was made of. What we had instead were sets of speculations about what it was made of and what it looked like. And those were speculations that were grounded in other kinds of observations but until we actually had a detector, there was no way to really see whether we were correct about those things. Same thing is true of the Higgs boson, which current theories of particle physics will tell you is the particle responsible for most of the mass in the universe. It was theorized. Couldn't see it. Of course, you can't see it. It's too damn small. You had to create really specialized detection equipment to be able to detect the existence of a Higgs boson. Now, you don't actually have to be a realist in order to accept this process because neopositivists would say all we've done here is we've specified better observability conditions in order to falsify particular propositions. There is no problem building better equipment if you are a neopositivist. But it is this third category, which is where causal powers live that a neopositivist would really not be able to get on board with. And those are things that we can't observe even in principle because they are undetectable. So theories of particle physics tell us that we will never find single quarks, that they will always occur in particular patterns. Never by themselves, right? Social theorists tell us that social structure is the sort of thing that we can theorize about, but we can't actually see. Because social structure, capitalism, the division of labor, right, isn't just an observable empirical pattern of the way things are arranged. It's a kind of tendency for things to be arranged in a certain way. And you can't really see a tendency. You can see how things go, but under other circumstances, those things might manifest differently. So imagine that we're talking about something like capitalism and capitalist understandings of property. And sometimes capitalist understandings of property look like a robust market in the exchange of different things for money. And sometimes capitalist notions of property 
look like various kinds of monopolistic ownership that then provides what looks like common use. And you can explain that by saying, well, in this case, you had state regulation, which mediated certain parts of capitalism. So does that mean it's not capitalist anymore? Mm, well, because left it itself, if you took those same property interests and you took away some of those regulations, then they would go off in a different direction. So the point here is that simply looking out at the world and looking at evidence is not going to be sufficient to be able to adjudicate when you're talking about something that is unobservable, something that is a potential, something that is, we might say, an irreducibly theoretical object, like social structure. These are objects that are known by what they do in practice. You, you develop theories about an undetectable object like this, potential like this, by engaging in a process called abductive inference. You take a set of observed outcomes and reason backwards. What must be the case in order for these things to happen? So here are sets of populist uprisings. What is required? What kinds of potentials must human beings have in order that these populist rhetorics are able to move them to action? What must be true about individuals? What kinds of potentials must they have that are somehow being tapped to get them out in the streets for these things? Now, it's not enough to just speculate about causal powers. If you are a realist, you have to take causal powers and figure out a way to isolate them and vet them, evaluate them, see whether they're actually there. Because again, this is still mind world dualist. It's still supposed to be parts of the world in a mind independent way. So how do you do this? Well, the gold standard would be to do it in a laboratory. That's how a realist would understand what happens when, say, psychologists take individuals and bring them into the laboratory and expose them to different stimuli and see if they can come up with some understanding of basic human perceptual capacity. Okay, great. Now we know something about how human beings process information in an idealized laboratory setting. Out there in the actual world, there's all kinds of crazy stuff going on. So those potentials, just like the magnet, might get interfered with, right, by things going on out there in the environment. So we shouldn't expect to see correlations. What we should instead expect to see is because we've vetted this mechanism in the laboratory and we know it's actually there, we should expect to see it manifesting in different ways. So that's what we would then do to explain. If you have a lab, you can do this because your confidence in the reality of the causal power or theoretical object is that you've been able to poke and prod it in a laboratory. You can kind of elicit or elucidate it in the laboratory. You can't do that. Fallback position is what you might call transcendental argument. And transcendental argument is reasoning backwards to what must be true in order for something to have happened. So if we have a, I'm trying to explain an uprising, we're trying to figure out why an uprising occurred, why so many people died. Well, it must be the case that certain kinds of techniques that were being pursued actually have the potential to kill people. 
So properties of weapons, say, properties about human bodies and their exposure to certain sorts of conditions. Those things you can arrive at kind of transcendentally, like this must be true in order for the observed implications to occur. And I can't just throw it in a laboratory and manipulate it and see what happens, but I can kind of reason backwards to it. This is the second best. Uh, this is why you sometimes get a split between what you might call the scientific realists who are really big on laboratories and then you have the critical realists who say ah but we can do this in the social sciences because there's such a robust tradition of say theorizing about capitalism that people are using it and it's explaining stuff and therefore we know that the mechanisms and powers that they're talking about are actually things in the world because they're helping us explain things. And you'll notice that I just split from causal mechanisms, causal powers to causal mechanisms, and that was actually quite deliberate. Because causal mechanisms are a form of causal power, of a disposition, right? They work the same way as these kinds of undetectable dispositions that are not reducible to their empirical components. So a causal mechanism, right, you might think of as a linked series of occurrences, right? They unfold in a similar way on different kinds of occasions, not an identical way, but a similar way. When you're working with causal mechanisms, right, the argument is that they don't always have to yield the same observable outcomes because they interact with other mechanisms and other pieces of the environment, other parts of the situation in different ways and generate different kinds of things which should get you thinking in terms of the magnet not always showing that it's a magnet because of things in the environment. These are very similar notions. So we can't simply say whether a mechanism is at work by looking for correlations between the input and the output. That's not sufficient. What you need instead is some judgment that the mechanism is quote-unquote actually present, so some observable traces of the mechanism that you can find. But those traces can't just be about the outcome, right? Because the outcome could be produced by a whole number of things, could be interfered with by a bunch of stuff. So you can't just look at inputs and outputs. You've got to look at processes, how things are connected together. And by mechanisms here, I mean, I'm talking about things like brokerage, right? So brokerage, you might think of as a general social mechanism in which you have two parties that are not connected to each other, but are connected through a third party and only through the third party. This puts the third party in a position of being able to broker between them, it can broker agreements or exchanges and so on. A certain amount of power that comes with being at that point in a brokerage relationship. Brokerage as a causal mechanism, you could say brokerage under certain circumstances produces certain kinds of things, but brokerage at the level of interstate relations and alliances and brokerage at the level of um, me trying to pass messages between my two friends who just broke up after having been dated for a while, it's not going to produce exactly the same kinds of effects. The mechanism is continual and constant, but how it manifests and what it does depends an awful lot on the environment and how things are connected and so on. Balancing behavior works the same way, if you're thinking about this in terms of international studies, say. So states in anarchy balancing against one another because they're trying to uh, preserve their autonomy by building up enough power that other states can't attack them. Okay, but balancing is going to look very different in different circumstances because balancing is not just a correlation between some input and some output. 
it is a tendency to increase one's power based on external provocation. Okay, great, but what does that look like? Well, I've got a whole bunch of different things. So what this means is I can't possibly observe it and I can't reduce it simply to a set of correlations between inputs and outputs. I have to trace the mechanism. And by tracing the mechanism, I'm not exhausting the mechanism. I am tracing the way the mechanism, which is itself undetectable, manifests in a particular situation. That's the realist critique. Now then the kind of explanations that realist approaches then lend itself to are the kinds of explanations where instead of having covering laws under which we subsume individual cases and situations, we have causal powers and mechanisms interacting in an open system. Lots of different things kind of colliding with each other. You cannot correlate using real world data in order to see whether or not something is present. That is why hypothesis testing of the neo-positivist sort is not really what people of a realist inclination do, not in quite the same way. Again, it's that two-stage process. You isolate a causal power or a mechanism conceptually or in a lab. You've got to have some independent basis for believing that this thing is real, that's part of the world. But having that, you then it's not that you then go out into the world and start gathering evidence as to whether or not there's actually a correlation here. That's not what you're interested in. Instead, you take those mechanisms, those powers, those processes, and you show how they interact in a particular case to generate a particular outcome. You are looking for what Mackey once called Inus conditions insufficient non-redundant components of a causal complex that is itself unnecessary but sufficient. So the outcome could have been produced in a different way, but in this case it wasn't. It was produced by these things actually combining with each other and generating the case-specific outcome. So where neo-positivists are wrapped up with the idea that explanation means generality and subsumption under a general law, realists would argue that explanation is about explaining how certain things emerge in particular cases because of the interaction of or the arrangement of general mechanisms. So it's sort of generality at the level of mechanism, if you will. The goal then for a realist is not to have unfalsified covering laws, which can be utilized, Instead, the goal for a realist is to have complete explanations, a rich enough scientific ontology of powers and potentials that we can make sense out of these very different kinds of case-specific outcomes. That that's what we're looking for when we are engaged in this. And that search is grounded in the wagers that animate a realist approach, which are mind-world dualism on the one hand, so I have to vet and evaluate your causal mechanisms, and the idea of going beyond the empirical through a notion of transfactuality, that you can actually know things that are not just empirically perceivable, but are, in the realist idiom, still real, still integral component parts of the world, the mind-independent world that actually exists. So hopefully that gives you a good sense of the contrast 
between neopositivism and realism as two variants of mind-world dualism.